4: Welcome to episode 63 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, February 11, 2024. I'm
3: Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy, I'm Allison Gill. And thanks to everybody who listened to the bonus episode on the immunity ruling in D.C. And Andy... I'm really glad we did a separate episode because otherwise this episode would be like 2 hours long. So Yeah, we we
4: need an intermission in the middle of it. So
3: <laughs> So and by the way, that it's it's out now if you haven't listened to it. It is the first episode after 62 weeks that we have had to break in and do an extra episode. So I encourage everybody to listen to it. Uh, But we have a lot to get to today. We'll go over potential new trial timelines for D.C. But we have so much to cover down in Florida with the Mar-a-Lago documents case, including Jack Smith's response to Trump's ridiculous overbroad motion to compel discovery, along with a ruling on that motion from Judge Cannon that Jack Smith says contains a clear error and manifest injustice. And could be what leads to the first appeal to the 11th Circuit by the government, depending on how she rules. I'm thinking clear error and manifest
4: in, injustice is not what you're gunning for as a federal <laughs> judge. But we'll see how that plays out. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we also have another Trump motion to delay in Florida. Uh, this one's asking for more time to file pretrial motions, including one on absolute presidential monarchy. No, I'm sorry, immunity. <laughs> But first, we need to discuss the latest in the SEPA process, which means it's time to talk to SEPA expert Brian Greer for our Underseal segment.
1: That's classified. It's what?
3: It's classified. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Brian Greer, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me back.
3: Uh, we needed you this week because we have a lot of weird stuff going back and forth with this SIPA Section 4 stuff. So I was hoping you could give us a little reminder about how it's supposed to normally go and then what we're seeing happen happening in the last couple of weeks here.
0: Well, first, you know, we named this segment under seal probably like six months ago, and now I think the name is finally coming to fruition. Like we have... Now, finally, all these sealed proceedings, which are all sort of bubbling up this week with the SEPA Section 4, with the Motion Compel, everything. So I'm glad the name is really finally uh, playing out.
4: Let's hope the name doesn't change to No Longer Under seal. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It could
0: be expedited appeal to the 11th Circuit then, yeah. Um, So yeah, we've covered this before, but just to refresh everyone on what is SEPA Section 4. So in short, it's a tool under SEPA that allows the government to protect classified information that technically meets the standards of discovery, that it it is relevant to the case and discoverable under Rule 16 of the Rules of Criminal Procedure. But because it's classified, the government wants to assert what's essentially a classified information privilege, just like executive privilege or attorney-client privilege, to protect it in discovery. And then SEPA provides the tool for doing that. And so what the government does was it'll go in in a motion and with supporting declarations and say, hey... There are some documents out there, information that is technically discoverable, but we want to basically sanitize it in different ways. It could be redacting it. It could be excising a discoverable sentence and putting it in a new document or summarizing it, any of those tools. But they need the court's blessing to do that because the court needs to look at all and make sure that the defendant is in substantially the same places to defend themselves as if that hadn't happened. And so that's pretty normal in every single case involving classified information. It's going to be a lot different here. And we'll talk about that, but that's the normal process. And I would just add the normal stance of DOJ is to aggressively use it in the DOJ guidance. It says you should use section four to remove anything from discovery that you can. That's the guidance prosecutors. That's not really what's happening here, but we'll talk about that.
3: Right. Right. And, and so, you know, when we get to SEPA section four, That's when uh, the DOJ, the government, is supposed to meet with the judge uh, in camera ex parte without the defense there at all, lawyers or defendants, to go over how they're going to uh, sanitize the information so that the judge can make the call. And then usually after the judge and the DOJ come to some sort of an agreement, the defense will have an opportunity to challenge any of that, right? But what are we seeing here that's that's different?
0: Well, one thing that's different is just the fact that she's giving consideration to Trump's motion and the other defendants' motion for getting access to the information. They are they have said we want to see what DOJ is filing in their briefs under Section Four, and obviously, like just to say the obvious, the whole point of the DOJ litigation is they shouldn't see it. So if they get to see it, <laughs> it just defeats the whole purpose of Sipa Section Four. So. I think they even they kind of get that and say, "Well, if you won't let us see the classified information, at least let us see the unclassified portions of DOJ's motions and briefs." That's a little harder issue judges don't, don't don't normally do that. Frankly, that stuff is just boilerplate legal standards. Right. Um so I don't think it would be the end of the world if she let them see that, but it it would still be abnormal just because there's no real point to it usually. But her letting them make all these motions, uh well, they can make the motions, but seriously entertaining to the point of giving them hours of argument <laughs> coming up next week about it is is definitely unusual. Normally this would have been dismissed pretty easily.
4: And and I know you can't answer this question and now I'm going to ask you anyway, <laughs> why? Why are we here? Do you think that what's motivating her or or driving some of these really outlier decisions about SIPA is that she doesn't understand the process or she's never dealt with it before, or maybe doesn't have the right context about why it's so important for the government to be able to protect classified and sensitive information, but it's also important for them to be able to use it in a transparent way that's clear and uh, relevant to the defendant in a trial. It's like you have these two totally uh, at-odds competing um, ideas at play here. And what she's doing is really rattling the foundation of the process that we came up with years ago to facilitate actually having fair trials about this stuff.
3: Yeah. The age-old yeah, I mean, question, is is Judge Cannon incompetent or evil? Um, I think is yeah, <laughs> what yeah. it boils down to. So right? you
0: know? there's definitely the, the evil element, which everyone can draw their own conclusions on uh, in the bias issues. Uh, incompetence, I think, is definitely absolutely part of it a play there's still i i'm not really an optimist but i try to present an optimistic view to everyone and and i'll do that here which is to say she's never been through it before and now she has right like the first thing she did was instead of having she does have this hearing coming up uh, this upcoming week two-day hearing about sepa but then she asked doj for an earlier one back on january 31st which was sort of a pre sepa section four hearing where she met with them for a couple hours to talk about all this which is what she normally should have done yeah. So the fact that he, she even realized after looking at the motions and stuff, hey, I should meet with them ahead of time, a little bit of a good sign. And then this might be a good transition into the Trump, what's going to happen with Trump? So because I think there's maybe some reason for optimism there. She has no idea what DOJ has been planning until she read their briefs right. and their motion. At DOJ with Trump, I think, is going to certainly take a, an extremely narrow, limited use of CIPA Section 4. He was the former president of the United States. And normally any defendant would get access to the classified information in an espionage act case that they had access to while in government. And so they're they're probably turning all that stuff over to him. What they're only really probably withholding is very limited things that occurred after he was president and, and that are probably in pretty limited documents. The hypothetical example I think of is, let's say the CIA sent a cable out overseas to the station and said, hey, go talk to the liaison service. Tell them we regret to inform you that there was some Identifying for information about your source in one of the Trump documents. Here's what it said. And they wrote back to the CIA and said, you know what? We looked at it. Not a big deal. We don't think it identifies him. He's good. That would be technically discoverable. But DOJ might want to say, hey, we don't want to turn over this whole cable. Maybe it talked about other things. Maybe it revealed the name of the source, which isn't really relevant to this case. Uh, There's all sorts of other information. Cable's just not relevant. Let us just take that little sentence out hand it to Trump's lawyers in classified discovery, delete the rest. That It could be very narrow things right. like that that she should have no heartburn with. And these are smart prosecutors. So I, I'm hoping that with Trump, they see, oh, wow, they're actually being very tailored with this. Maybe I'm good with it. And then at the same time, she is hearing there, the Trump's and the other lawyers' arguments as to why, what their discovery theories are so she can better evaluate that. So if you put those two together, maybe, just maybe, she'll come to the reasonable conclusion. All right.
3: Fingers crossed. Now, can DOJ respond to uh, Donald Trump's assertions, like, you know, how you generally you have a brief and a response and a sir reply or reply and a sir reply? Like if Trump's like, look, uh, we need to see these and here's why. Can Jack Smith or Jay Brad or somebody on the prosecution team have a, have an opportunity to to say, Uh, to to rebut those arguments and say there's no law here, there's no citation, you know, because commonly Trump will misquote or cherry pick or miss cite cases um, or the law and and get the facts wrong on the law. Does the DOJ have an opportunity to rebut those arguments that Trump might put forward forward to to get access to these things?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there's two distinct but related issues. One is their arguments about why we should be able to participate in the Section 4 process and see the briefs. That's that's been briefed and that's been adversarial. But then there's the second thing that we talked about, which I think is what you're getting at, which is the they are going to be allowed this upcoming week to go into our chambers and explain their defense theories without the prosecutors being present. That that is not abnormal in a CPA Section 4 case and permitted and something that would happen in a in a normal case. Sometimes the defendants just don't do it for various reasons, but but DOJ is normally fine with that and they have no objection to that here because it's the one sort of carrot that's given the defense of saying, hey, you can go tell the judge what you think your best
4: defenses are so they can evaluate it. It's basically like an olive branch, right? We let yeah. the government have all this private time with the judge. Okay, we'll let you have some too. Although it's Technically, not nearly as relevant to the process, which is necessary to protect sensitive information. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: And one last thing on this, why are these hearings taking place now and not last November or last December? I don't understand the delay.
0: Yeah. And I think even with, you know, she delayed everything in the fall, um, but even with the delays, the SEPA section, the government's SEPA section four motion was filed December 4th. The same day, Trump and the other defendants uh, put forth their arguments about why they should be given access to that stuff. I think DOJ responded a couple weeks later about why they shouldn't be given access. So this litigation was was done in late December, and we've now waited all this time over a month and a half since then to have this hearing. There's real there nothing has happened in the last month and a half that would affect this at all. Trump might argue, well, we learned some stuff in discovery. That was real re- relevant. Like maybe that'll help on the margins, but we've just wasted a month and a half for no reason. It's, it, this has been fully briefed and ready uh, since December. So,
3: Yeah. And so far up to this point, it seems like these nickel and dime delays, a month here, three months here to to make rulings and make decisions and set hearing dates um, has kind of been the MO, um, it, it, but nothing overly egregious yet, right? Breaking, violating the law or the SEPA processes from Judge Cannon.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're up on the edge. We'll see what happens with the motion to compel that you guys will talk about later. Um, we're on the edge here, but other than the delays for for no good reason, we have she hasn't just gone over that edge yet and to create an appealable issue.
4: Yeah. Yeah, she's a bit like my um, my frustration with the Duke uh basketball team this season. No sense of urgency. Come on, fellas, <laughs> hustle down the court for God's <laughs> sakes. There's no hustling down the court happening in uh Florida on this case either so it's a little bit frustrating to watch. Yeah. Hey Brian, what's can you can you tell us a little bit about what's happening with Walt Nauta and uh and his uh, partner there Dale Oliveira. They're in a little bit of a different track but but relevant to uh the section 4 stuff.
0: Yeah, so remember they're not charged under the Espionage Act, which means the contents of the documents at Mar-a-Lago that Trump's charged with aren't relevant to the case against them. DOJ isn't alleging that they've seen them except for the one that Nauta took a picture of, and they have shared that with Nauda, the, the cover right. of that document that he took right. a picture of. The rest of it, DOJ's position is, the defendants do not need to see those documents because they're not relevant to their case, the contents of them. Right. They still shared them with their defense counsel, though, unredacted and classified discovery. And normally in a protective order, that's something that would be sort of permitted is to share it with outside counsel only, cleared counsel only, not the defendant. And then if they want to make a case, hey, we should be able to see the I need to show this document to my defendant. Sure. Yeah. They ask DOJ, if DOJ says no, they get to go to the court. Here Cannon flipped all that on its head. She said everything basically is presumptively going to be shared with the defendants and DOJ has to use section 4 to pre- to pretend to prevent Nautandiel Oliveira from seeing these documents.
4: It's just so- like reversing the burden
0: Exactly. The whole process, yeah. Exactly. So it's, yeah. a, it's a little nutty, but, but there again, to put the optimist uh, tint on it, what that means though is in DOJ's Section 4 litigation and their briefs and supporting declarations, which are from probably very senior intelligence officials and in way more detailed than they would be in a normal case, they have to go through all those documents one by one and explain why they're classified and what the harm to national security would be from their unauthorized disclosure. That wouldn't have happened in this case, but for this quirky thing that she ruled. She would have never heard till they were getting ready for trial about that. And so now DOJ is going to get this chance to make their case to her. Here's here's the real harm in this case. And they can do it right now, sort of, well, we're still, frankly, early <laughs> in the pretrial process. So, again, probably not going to change her mind about anything, but but maybe, maybe it will. So we'll see. If she's ever going to change her mind, it's going to be now. If she comes out of this same as always, then I think yeah. nothing's ever going to change her mind. So
4: it's, it's more delay, but it's possibly an opportunity to kind of open the judge's eyes as to what's really at stake here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So, and, and speaking of delay, um, Donald Trump has filed a motion to extend pretrial motion deadlines. And in it, he says, defendants currently plan to file on February 22nd at minimum, a series of motions to dismiss the superseding indictment and certain of the charges therein. Specifically, although the defense is still evaluating potential motions, we expect to file motions on February 22nd relating to the Presidential Immunity, the Presidential Records Act, President Trump's security clearances, the vagueness doctrine, impermissible pre-indictment delay. That's, that's a funny one. Uh, and selective and vindictive prosecution. And Trump asked for the deadline to be within one month of the court's resolution of the pending motions. So basically never. So Brian, what's your, what's your top line thoughts about that little grenade getting thrown into the process?
0: Yeah, well, on on the delay points, I would refer people to DOJ's uh, brief that they just filed on this that was, I think, short but excellent, saying, look, this was all supposed to be done on November 3rd. She didn't actually delay the pretrial schedule until November 3rd. So they should have been ready on all this on November 3rd. They um, point out that they get the legal standard wrong um, because normally the whole point, as everyone knows who's been tracking the DC cases, is. When you file these motions to dismiss, you accept what's in the indictment as true. Right. So you don't need discovery. Their whole argument is we need more discovery to delay this. You don't need discovery under the law, which they conveniently omitted from their briefing <laughs> with her. And then they came up with this excuse of hey, they just gave us these 2,200 pages of documents. Uh, we need a delay for Can't that. Can't possibly well, go forward now. Well, yeah. DOJ explained in the motion in their response that 2,200 is from uh, probably the DC grand jury proceeding litigation about about privilege. Um, Half of them, Trump's lawyers were given in that case. It's just that those lawyers didn't give them to some of the new lawyers. And then the other half have already been produced in discovery in this case. Uh, And they didn't disclose any of that to judge cannon (laughs) when they cited this. Um, So hopefully she'll get upset by all this. The other thing that jumped out is the presidential immunity piece, (laughs) which I think, you know, it's funny, but it's also going to be aggravating when, There is another delay because of this, but if you thought it was crazy to argue that he could order SEAL Team Sticks to kill his presidential opponent and be entitled presidential immunity, here they're going to be saying his post-presidential conduct, remember this is all post-presidential conduct, is immunized uh, under presidential immunity, which is just a whole new level of craziness on this argument And, you know, there may be some more serious elements. Hey, I was still president when I took him to Mar-a-Lago, and then I shouldn't be prosecuted because when the clock struck midnight or noon, excuse me, on January 20th, I was no longer president anymore. They'll they'll say he probably, like, effectively declassified them by doing that. But still, the fact of the matter is he's only charged with post-presidential conduct. That doesn't mean you can just keep them forever and, and be absolved from criminal liability forever, especially when the government's asking for them back. So. It will be silly, ultimately dismissed. Will it cause some delay? Sure. Sure probably, it will, yes.
3: Yeah, but it but it says we plan on filing these uh against the superseding indictment. And the superseding indictment is just obstruction. It has nothing to do it has nothing to do well, with it. Well, it's
0: still I think they just mean it it's still considered the operative indictment. Okay. So that means Oh, the whole I got thing. it. Yeah.
3: I see. Not just the superseding charges.
0: But to your point though, the obstru- this argument would have n- no bearing on obstruction, no bearing on obstruction, or yeah, the yeah. other related obstruction charges. They may still come up with, with some crazy argument <laughs> similar to what we saw with um, Barr in the OLC memo of if if this was an invalid investigation. I, I yeah. would, he was entitled it's to obstructive the, the
4: transitive property of presidential immunity.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So they may come up with something pretty extreme, but um, it should be dismissed. The question is just how long is it going to delay things?
3: Yeah. yeah, I do expect to see the argument that Bill Barr made, that you can't obstruct justice without an underlying crime. And then he'll try to argue that there's no underlying crime here because he was president and he's immune or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, if,
4: you, if it's all fruit of the fruity tree. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: right.
4: If uh, if DOJ
0: probably could do it over, they'd probably I was looking back at the indictment for each charge. It says the criminal conduct started on January 20th. I'd, they'd probably like make up some date further back. Potentially yeah. on that, because just to because they're going to point to that. I think Trump's lawyers will and say, "See, it was immediate on on noon. That's not fair mm. to a former yeah. president."
4: But yeah, we'll see. yeah.
3: Well, uh, yeah. thank you very much, my friend. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on here and summing this up for us um, these last few weeks of uh, SEPA stuff, and then, of course, uh, <laughs> love to hear your opinion about the immunity, uh, post presidential immunity. That's going to be a whole new thing. Uh, and, you know, because we waited forever for that D.C. immunity ruling. Uh, and now we could actually see that here. Uh, so anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we'll see uh, how, how that goes. But uh, we appreciate your time. Can you tell everybody where to find and follow you?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter and other platforms at, at Secrets and Laws.
3: Thank you Excellent. so much.
4: Brian, thanks so much. Great to see you again. Thanks a lot. Likewise.
3: Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're staying in Florida to cover Jack Smith's reply to Trump's motion to compel. You'll recall from previous episodes that Trump filed a similarly overbroad motion in D.C. and special counsel took it apart piece by piece. We've covered that on the show. Well, now we're doing the same do-si-do in Florida. Uh, we, we went over Trump's motion to compel Uh, in a previous episode. So now we have Jack Smith's 67-page response to Trump's motion to compel. Yeah,
4: and it's, it's a doozy. So Jack Smith opens with this. The government will explain below why the defendant's showings fall short of applicable legal requirements. But before turning to those arguments, it is necessary to set the record straight on the underlying facts that led to this prosecution because the defendant's motion paints an inaccurate and distorted picture of events. The government will clear the air on those issues not because the court needs to resolve factual disputes before denying the motion. It need not resolve the facts. But because of the defendant's misstatements, if unanswered, leave a highly misleading impression on a number of matters. After that discussion, the government will turn to the underlying legal principles and their application to defendant's requests, all of which should be denied. The defendants rely... On a pervasively false narrative of the investigation's origins. Their apparent aim is to cast a cloud of suspicion over responsible actions by government officials diligently doing their jobs. The defendant's insinuations have scant factual or legal relevance to their discovery requests, (laughs) but they should not stand uncorrected. Put simply, the government here confronted an extraordinary situation a former president engaging in calculated and persistent obstruction of the collection of presidential records, which as a matter of law belong to the United States for the benefit of history and posterity. And as a matter of fact, here included a trove of highly classified documents containing some of the nation's most sensitive information. The law required that those documents be collected and the record establishes that the relevant government officials perform their tasks with professionalism and patience in the face of unprecedented defiance. Defendants are not entitled to discovery of items that are not within the government's possession, custody, or control.
3: Yeah. I mean, it. this is a, why I think this brief is 67 pages is because, you know, as you're about to cover, Jack Smith goes through the entire investigative process and crime going back to the beginning and, you know, basically saying, look, you don't, the court doesn't need to know this, but we need to set the record straight before we even get into the legal implications of what Donald Trump's asking for.
4: Yeah, there is definitely, um, this This thing rings with a sense of, we are sick of this BS. Right. You know, you don't typically get that from government filings. It's always very, nothing but the facts, straightforward, um, you know, sometimes they get a little bit more heated when they're talking about alleged wrongdoing actions, things like that. But uh, this is really like almost like a settling scores sort of thing. But clearly the the special counsel team felt it's necessary to do this to to stand up to this barrage of false information.
3: Yep, exactly. And then Jack Smith outlines all the facts, like I said, including the removal of presidential records by Trump starting back on January 20th, yep. the retrieval efforts by the National Archives, the delays and the continued efforts by the National Archives. There's even a section called Fall Comes with, and we still don't have it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the leaves and, turn and there's no <laughs> the, documents. And then the leaves turn and snow begins to fall. Yeah. And then finally, 15 boxes make their way to the National Archives. The National Archives finds classified documents in those boxes. Then in January of 2022, the archivist reaches out to the DOJ and says, hey, we got some classified stuff here. DOJ actually says to the archivist, go back to your inspector general, have them review this, and then have them contact us. That is the proper process by which you make a referral to the Department of Justice and Jack Smith uh, and the and the special counsel's office outlines this a, as a way to say there's nothing nefarious going on here we put every layer of every process of every step of the entire thing in its correct place we did this the right way so then in february the next month of 2022 that's when they make their official referral to the department of justice and then finally he goes into the investigation, including the subpoena, what happened, the search warrant, and then the indictment. And after laying out all the facts of, of the, the whole timeline, special counsel's office dives in to the motion to compel, right? That, so yep. he's, he's set the record straight. And now, Andy, what, what does he have to say about, about the motion to compel?
4: Well, he starts with kind of laying it out, right? He says, to prevail on a motion to compel, the defendants must make three showings. First, they must describe the information they seek with sufficient particularity to demonstrate that the evidence is, quote, material to preparing the defense under Rule 16 or material to guilt or punishment under Brady. Second, they must demonstrate that the information they seek is within the government's possession, custody, or control. Third, the information they seek must not be protected, from disclosure by an applicable privilege. Each of the defendants' discovery requests fails to satisfy one or more of these requirements. <laughs> Many fail to seek evidence material to preparing their defense because they are not specific, are not accompanied by an explanation of how the item sought will significantly alter the proof in the defense's favor, or are grounded in speculation and conjecture. Other requests seek evidence that even if it existed would fall outside the scope (laughs) of Rule 16 and Brady because it has nothing to do with factual guilt or innocence. Yeah. I mean, it's like you would expect to see this on a review of like a first-year law student's uh, paper. You know, like, no, you got the law all wrong. Stuff's irrelevant. It's nonsense.
3: Yeah. And we saw this in the D.C. filing too where Jack Smith is like, this stuff doesn't even exist. Remember when he wanted all the deleted January 6th committee material? Uh, <laughs> and, and he did this in, by the way, he did this in Fulton County too, in the state prosecution by yeah. DA Fonnie Willis. And the judge there was like, uh, just like two sentences. He's like, this stuff doesn't exist. Motion denied. Like it was, nice. <laughs> it was just nice. in that's and the out.
4: State, that's the difference in the state. They, just, they know how to like grind <laughs> through things quickly because they it's, get such a massive volume to handle.
3: Yeah. So he also, just like in the D.C. motion to compel, Trump tries to expand what's called expanding the scope of the investigative team. Right. Because as Jack Smith says, you can only get stuff that's in control and custody of the investigative team. Right. So Trump comes in and says, the Department of Energy is investigating me. I need memos from the Department of Energy, or you know, in the in the DC case, uh, there was a briefing between the ODNI and Jeff Clark, and I need that notes on that briefing, uh, stuff from the intelligence community, underlying materials from the ICA, the, the uh, intelligence community assessment on you know on Russia, right, right. Uh, it, you know those things, and Jack Smith explained succinctly there. That's they're not part of the investigative team, bro. Department of Energy is not in the special counsel's office. So you can't ask for that stuff, even if it existed. And the same thing happens here. Uh, Trump is trying to expand the scope of the investigative team to seek documents from multiple agencies that he's not entitled to. And then when documents are from the investigative team that, that they might have that Jack Smith or the investigative team might actually have control or custody over, those A lot of those documents, as Jack Smith are, are co- says, are covered by privilege, attorney-client right. privilege, work product doctrine, speech or debate privilege, deliberative process privilege. Trump can't have those either.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, again, he's like having to give a lesson to the defense in, in how discovery is conducted and kind of to the judge at the same time. So uh, Jack Smith sums it up like this. Applying these principles to the defendant's discovery request shows that their motion to compel should be denied in full. The defendants group their requests into six main categories in, in which they seek, one, evidence of improper coordination with the National Archives to abuse the grand jury process, and two, evidence relating to the attempt to retroactively terminate President Trump's security clearance and related disclosures, three, evidence relating to the use of secure facilities at President Trump's residences, four, evidence of bias and investigative misconduct, five, all correspondence and or communications concerning the search of Mar-a-Lago, and six, CCTV footage. These also include two additional uncategorized requests seeking seven, the removal of redactions, and eight, the production in unclassified discovery of certain materials produced in classified discovery. Each request to the extent that it seeks evidence that has not already been turned over fails to establish one or more of the requirements for a motion to compel, namely that the evidence sought must be material to the defense. It must be within the government's possession, custody or control and must not be protected from disclosure by an applicable privilege.
3: Yeah. And, Andy, I think my favorite part <laughs> is the couple pages that are spent um, where Jack Smith is responding to Trump, alleging that the DOJ failed to produce the CCTV footage, number six in your list up there, uh, when it was actually Trump, Walt and Carlos's months long inability to figure out how to work the video player. Like at, fr- at first... They were trying to watch it on an iPad, and so the government's like, "No, you can't do that. Let's bring you." So they run a laptop over to him, and then uh, like a month goes by, and they, they contact the DOJ. We can't get this to work, and 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 the DOJ responds, "It's your proprietary video player from the Trump organization." <laughs> All right, let's send yeah. an IT like it was a it was a IT nightmare back and forth to just try to get them to be able to watch the video, uh, and so that and, that's and why uh,
4: let's remember. This is not like some closed-circuit, surreptitious surveillance video that the government installed (laughs) in Mar-a-Lago. It's their CCTV. Yeah. I mean, presumably, they have access to as much or as little of that stuff as they want to look at anytime they want on their own system. Yeah, and they should be
3: calling Alan Futterfoss or the IT guy over at... Isn't Dale Avera an IT guy? Uh, Well, they can't talk to Tavares anymore, but, you know... (laughs) Why don't they call the Trump organization and say, hey, how do we figure out how to yeah. watch our own CCTV video? No, they wait and wait and wait and then complain to the judge. We can't even view this and get we the need to. twins
4: on it. Come on, get somebody <laughs> get down Cal- here. Bust open <laughs> the CCTV. Our, our defense is getting stale. I mean, mm. oh, my gosh.
3: Yeah. So that I thought that was kind of that was just a little entertainment that he put that in there. Um, but there's more than meets the eye to this motion to compel. Trump attached some protected discovery to the motion in what appears to be an attempt to release that discovery which includes the names of witnesses and some of their testimony to the public this i don't know how this is yeah. going to work out but we'll talk this about is getting it after real. yeah it's no. it seems yeah. like a, it seems like trickery but uh, we'll talk about it after the break stick around uh,
4: Welcome back. Allison, as you hinted before the break, there's something nefarious going on with Trump motions to unseal uh, that include the names of witnesses and evidence that's actually under a protective order. Uh, so what can you tell us about this?
3: Okay, wow. This, this was uh, late, the late Thursday night, right? Like Like almost midnight. Jack Smith filed what I read as his most stunning rebuke of Judge Cannon. On the Mar-a-Lago docket. I mean, we thought the, the his reply to the motion to compel was on fire. This was beyond. It's he filed a motion for reconsideration and a stay on her previous order to unseal documents filed as supplements to that motion to compel we just talked about. In his motion, Jack Smith said Judge Cannon made a quote clear error, unquote, and that she must reverse it to prevent quote manifest injustice. I have never, no, I, you know, like thinking back to when we had our very first conversation on the old Mueller She Wrote podcast about Mueller going to paper and his his letter about how his his uh, they bar mischaracterized his findings and all yeah. that strong language in there. I have never seen a manifest injustice and clear error uh, in a you know, filing like this yet in this case, but we have it now. Pretty serious so,
4: accusation against a federal judge. Yeah. You know, you sometimes see from defense attorneys who are, you know, working a strategy of trying to, like, light everybody's hair on fire, thrown around big words about this is an absolute travesty of justice, that sort of thing. You don't really see that on the prosecution side, Um So to to basically throw the possibility of clear error, which equals you're going to get overturned on appeal and manifest injustice into a federal judge's face by the prosecution is pretty, pretty rare.
3: Yeah, I've only seen language like this back when Jack Smith was dealing with Judge Cannon in the special master Mm -hmm. uh, situation, which, by the way, got overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, because she made a clear error. So Trump attached sealed supplements to that motion to compel that we just talked about, that include over two dozen witness names and evidence transcripts that are covered by the discovery protective order, which was issued by Canon. And that's when you you know, when you when you put a, a protective order on discovery, it means that when you send it over to Trump's camp, they can't release it to the public. That's right. Right? Yeah. And and it's you can't violate the protective order. So he's attaching all of this protected discovery to this motion to compel and then asking Cannon to unseal it. And she granted that. So I think he's doing this so he can make public the names of potential witnesses and their testimony. And I think Jack Smith knew instantly that this was Trump's goal. And, of course, that's speculation about what's going on in the minds and hearts of the parties yeah, here. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But before he filed his motion for consideration, reconsideration, before Jack Smith filed this motion... He filed to ask permission, leave of the court, to add evidence to his motion under seal showing online threats made against one of the government's potential witnesses. Jack Smith asked to file it under seal because those threats, Andy, are actually currently under federal criminal investigation. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to reveal stuff that, you know, is under federal criminal investigation.
4: It's the definition of sensitive information in a criminal case.
3: Yeah. And that's how bad these threats are. And though we can't see that supplemental filing, we don't know the threats, we don't know the witness. I imagine it contains evidence that Trump's motive here is to release the names of these individuals to unleash threats of violence against them. Jack Smith has pointed this out in both jurisdictions in multiple filings, it, especially I'm thinking of the limited don't call it a gag order mm-hmm. uh, motions. Trump then claimed, and Judge Cannon ruled, that the standard for the government to keep those records sealed is much higher than the actual standard, right? Judge Cannon said that the, quote, government bore the burden to demonstrate that sealing or redaction is necessitated by a compelling governmental interest and is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. But that's incorrect. That's the clear error, right?
4: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So Jack Smith writes, First, the 11th Circuit has held that the compelling interest standard applied by the court does not apply to, quote, documents filed in connection with motions to compel discovery, which instead may be sealed or redacted simply upon a showing of good cause. He says that given the evidence of online threats currently under federal criminal investigation, combined with the standard practice of not releasing protected discovery to the public as it would hinder this case— is well beyond the good cause needed to keep them under seal. So he's asked Judge Cannon to reconsider her ruling, which contains a clear error on the law, and to stay the release of the witness information and evidence until she rules on Jack Smith's motion. Now, all of that protected discovery was going to be unsealed Friday, but early this morning, Judge Cannon issued a paperless order on the docket that she is extending this decision and giving trump nauta and dale oliveira until february 23rd to respond.
3: Hmm. this seems you know the the fact that he cited the 11th circuit now i know that you generally cite rulings in your circuit mm-hmm. when you're when you're citing cases in in a in a pleading right right that's uh, but the precedential like, value
4: I, right it's- i also
3: feel like there's a nudge like a elbow in the rib to Eileen Cannon, like, the 11th Circuit says you're wrong. Remember what happened the last time the 11th Circuit said you were wrong? Uh, and so I really think that this is a, the strongest indication yet that he, he's setting this up to appeal if she doesn't rule within the law and 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 correct her error.
4: I fully expect that he'll appeal if she doesn't, if she goes... Uh, against his request. He almost has no choice. The prosecutor has to do whatever he possibly can to protect uh, the witnesses in the case and to ensure that those people um, aren't harmed or discouraged or dissuaded from providing truthful testimony in any way. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, this does not sound like he's going to just Shrug his shoulders and walk away if she says, "Nah, don't worry about it. Let's put it all out there." The whole thing is so weird because it defies the purpose of the protective order in in the first place. Like, none of that stuff would have been under a protective order if it was okay to share it with the public. So, how did she just let this curveball slip right past her? I, I don't really know.
3: Yeah, I I don't know either, but <laughs> I. I, again, it, it boils down to incompetence, or you know, purposeful, purposefully trying to tank the case. I mean, it would this would do serious damage to his case and the ongoing investigation into the threats that were made online to this witness that are filed under seal here, and. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming she's not going to – because she she granted permission for him to file that under seal, so I don't think that she would end up releasing that, although I wouldn't uh, uh, be surprised if Donald Trump asked for it to be unsealed.
4: Who knows? I, um, and I'd be interested to see how how Trump and Dale Vera and Nauta come in and argue against Smith's petition here. Like they already have the names of the witnesses, right? They're not – you know the protective order doesn't conceal the witnesses from them. What's the uh, what's the argument in favor of sharing the witness list with the public? I, I, there's just no compelling interest to the defendant there at all. And I mean, maybe I'm not seeing it, but um, yeah, I, I'll be interested to hear what they articulate.
3: Yeah, but that she found that Jack Smith didn't meet the wrong burden. By the way, <laughs> the too right, high burden. Right. Uh, to keep these things sealed is is like why like what even what reason even is there like you said to release these witness names to the public other than yeah. you and I know what it is but <laughs> you know what and everybody else but what could possibly be the reason I it yeah. makes no sense but we'll keep an eye on it uh, for you all right before we get to the her report just security has uh, just issued a very handy graphic outlining the new potential DC trial timeline back up to judge chutkin now and this is based on the fact that we got the immunity ruling this past tuesday it's a flow chart so let me see if i can go through it here right now they say that in, in, in just security says that scotus is more probably more likely to actually grant cert in this case so their timelines are based on the supreme court granting cert. And honestly, if they don't grant cert, that's the fastest of all the, the timelines. Uh, but right. they don't really lay that out. They just say that granting cert is probably not on the table. I disagree a little bit. I think uh, that there's a strong possibility that the Supreme Court might deny cert here. But let's go through what happens if they grant cert. Um, if they treat the stay as a cert petition... Um, on February 12th, OK, mm-hmm. then by around March 5th through 15th, like the first half of March, they will have the oral arguments. Then sometime between April and 5th and 15th, there will be a Supreme Court decision. A lot of folks are saying it wouldn't have, you know, that they, they don't have to release have their decision
4: yeah.
3: till June, uh, but they can release it earlier. And so they're putting it at about April 5th through the 15th. And then saying the trial will begin sometime around the 5th of July, right, the first half mm-hmm. of July, and conclude in the first half of October, which is, gosh, a month before the, <laughs> before the election.
4: <laughs> Squeaking it in right before the door closes.
3: So that is the, tri- the timeline if they treat the stay as a cert petition. Now, let's say they grant a stay with a 10-day limit.
4: Meaning grant st- the stay and give them 10 days to actually file their official petition for cert.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then the petition for cert would be uh, granted February 29th, they say. Then oral arguments are pushed back to the end of March. And then a SCOTUS decision at the end of April. Trial begins at the end of July. And trial concludes at the end of October. And that's Tight. the longest timeline that they have here. Yeah. Um, But if they grant the stay petition for cert, there's a second option here that let's say that the petition for cert uh, is denied, it returns to the district court and trial begins June 1st and is over by September 1st, right?
4: That's closer to your dream scenario. And I should say one that a lot of people think is the most likely. I'm a little surprised that they're really leaning hard in the direction of the court will grant cert. Because uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of folks that are saying the opposite, but it's an interesting perspective.
3: It is. And then the third option is if they grant a stay without limits, like you you don't have any time limit to file, then that puts the CERT, the petition for CERT, not due until May 12th. Okay. And I mm-hmm. actually think that that's probably the longest timeline. It doesn't really have a um, what happens the rest of the way, probably because in that scenario, I don't think the trial just- goes... Not a chance. The election. Not a chance. And that's the worst case scenario everybody's talking about. Right. If if they grant cert and and don't it, put a time limit on it and grant a stay, then they could just sit on it for however long they wanted, and it's not due for forty five days.
4: Right. If they grant cert, you're getting a stay. It's going to come with the granting of certiorari, and if they just keep it on the normal track, which is that that last. Uh, Possibility number three that you just talked about. Yeah, there's no chance the the case goes before the election.
3: Well, there is another scenario where they could grant cert, but not a stay. Because it's interlocutory, you need five votes on the Supreme Court to grant the stay, but only four to grant cert. I don't know that this would – this seems like a real – one of those real outliers, um, because that would mean that they – and but we've seen this happen a few times, especially with privilege battles uh, in these particular cases, where the court says we'll hear your appeal, but we're not going to stay the DC trial, and the DC trial is allowed to continue. Uh, the, well, the proceedings are allowed to continue while they make their decision on certiorari. Uh, but then you run into the problem of the interlocutory nature of the appeal. You can't right. have the trial start until there is a decision, but they could that decision-making process could run parallel to some of the behind-the-scenes trial stuff going on in, in D.C., and maybe at some point the Twain shall meet, and they can decide whether they're going to go forward or, or you know— um, you know, block the trial. I don't, it's just, that seems like a real outlying thing where they would only get four votes and not five for the stay, but who knows? I mean, maybe there's, maybe John Roberts will be like, I'm not granting a stay. And, <laughs> but then they have to grant cert. Yeah. But, I find that you know, highly
4: unlikely if they, yeah. if they're going to dig in and say, yeah, we're going to, we're coming into this one. We're waiting into this cesspool. Uh, um, they're going to stop. They're going to stop the DC case in the, in the process. Uh, it yeah. wouldn't make sense for them to go forward.
3: Yeah. And tomorrow is the deadline. The The mandate goes into effect tomorrow. So unless the Supreme Court um, intervenes and grants cert and a stay or a cert without a stay or a stay without cert yet, whatever they decide to do, if they don't issue a stay by the close of day Monday, then the proceedings can continue uh, down in or up in the at the D.C., Trial proceedings can, can, can go forward. Like she can rule on motions, or more discovery can go over, or th- you know stuff like yep. that. Because the mandate issues on Monday, that yep. was built into this. The, remember how we said, wouldn't it be great if they lifted the stay when they came up with their decision on immunity? That's kind of what this is. Yeah. So,
4: yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But the, see where it goes. the
3: final, the final option, <laughs> way over here on the end, is that they deny surge
4: denied,
3: and then they Game put on. And then they put unlikely, <laughs> and they don't don't really explain why. But I think the reasons I've heard from what I'm from what I'm reading, at least, is that people think that the Supreme Court is really going to want to weigh in on this because they're full of themselves. Uh, that's sort of that's sort of man.
4: The- I don't know. I didn't hear a lot of like real positivity coming from their involvement in the arguments this week on the Fourteenth Amendment thing. They sounded reluctant as hell, um, mm-hmm. and I I, I I kind of feel like there there's a solid ruling for them to defer to, and I still feel like it's that's um, you know that's likely. But who knows? Who knows? There's there's no picking them.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I my favorite is they deny cert. The most likely I'm hearing is that they grant cert and a limited stay, and then make a, a pretty fast ruling. Which we'll and the ruling would be to deny immunity i was watching the arguments on the Fourteenth Amendment, and all of the conservative justices are like, yeah, but you can indict a you can indict a former president you could you know you could charge mm-hmm. him with twenty three eighty three that's the thing, and that would you know make it so that he wasn't eligible to be on the ballot, so they all seemed to to be embracing be,
4: this idea that there is no uh, presidential immunity, yeah right, right. in look in a very weird way. If they did weigh in and resolve the issue conclusively from the mouth of the Supreme Court, it would kill it in the Florida case. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Motion for immunity in the Florida case denied. I mean- But
3: it's special. It's different because I was no longer president. And so it's a carryover and I had a queue clearance and then that was Department of Energy, which is why I need their documents. I don't Uh, know.
4: Even Judge Cannon would have a hard time- (laughs) <laughs> have a hard time hosting that motion, hearing it and giving it consideration after the Supreme Court, just in an emergency rush process, weighed in to say, no way, not here, never.
3: Yeah. So. And she actually might, Judge Cannon might actually be like, I'm not going to rule on any immunity motion until it's resolved in the DC case. And yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. I would do, honestly. So she gets to delay a little bit, not really do any work. And- you know, <laughs> yeah. gets, gets to, um, you know, make a, a, a reasonable ruling. Yeah. Uh, but All right. Should we yeah, go t- to
4: to how the Americans feel about this? Yeah, this was great. This came,
3: this came from your colleagues at CNN.
4: Yeah. So new polling shows about half of Americans, 48%, say it's essential that a verdict is reached before the 2024 presidential election. And another 16% say they'd prefer to see one. Just 11% say that a trial on the charges should be postponed until following the election, with another quarter saying the trial's timing doesn't matter to them. Fascinating
3: group of people that quarter. Okay. Um, well, it doesn't right, so- matter to me. I'm, I'm not voting for him regardless of when a trial is, so maybe I would fall in that 25%. I
4: mean, I think you still want it to happen before, before <laughs> it's not going to change your vote but when you like to see the result. How no, it affects yeah, everybody else? I,
3: I think it's pretty important, yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah, all right. so as as you would expect, a seventy two percent majority of Democrats and a fifty two percent majority of independents say it's essential that a verdict is reached pre-election. Uh, Republicans are more split while thirty eight percent say that a verdict should be reached before the presidential election including 20% who call that essential. Uh, another 39% say that it doesn't matter when the trial is held. And 23% say they think the trial should be held after this election. So hmm. I don't know. I still think that those numbers show a pretty compelling interest in how this is going to turn out. And it's you could extrapolate that this Echoes kind of what some of the exit polling showed in Iowa and New Hampshire that people um, are watching this and there is some significant percentage of folks who would consider it a problem if a candidate nominee had been convicted of a felony.
3: Yeah, I think that 52% of independence is bad news uh, for him politically. And the fact that 38% of Republicans want a verdict before the election, I think that's a big number. So, well, we'll see. Um, we'll yeah. see how it turns out. Um, it kind of all depends on what the Supreme Court does on Monday. Yes. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. Uh, everybody, we need to take one more quick break, um, and we, but we have more news. So stick around. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hey, everybody, welcome back. Before we get to listener questions, we have to discuss Robert Herr and his <laughs> report. But before we get into it, Andy, I want to play our discussion about special counsel Robert Herr on episode seven of Jack. We're on 63. This is from episode seven. Little I was more just than a year-
4: baby podcaster back then. <laughs> we
3: were just babies. <laughs> uh, this is a little more than a year ago, uh, before you got your good microphone. So, everybody. Mm-hmm. Note uh this is when he was appointed special counsel to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents let's 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 listen to that clip
4: so yes, in the Mueller special counsel case, Rob was essentially the number two, and this is where I think the kind of perfection of his resume is great, but let's put that aside and think a little bit deeper here. Rob was part of the Trump. DOJ leadership team. And that is a team that was involved with a number of decisions and things that I think raise important questions now about Rob's current job. And the first would be the Mueller investigation. So we now know, of course, that Rob Her was Rod Rosenstein's guy that he used to oversee The special counsel work, Rob Herr met with, according to reports, the special counsel team like twice a week. And he was the guy that talked to Mueller and the Mueller team and brought that information back and reported it back to the acting attorney general for that case, who was Rod Rosenstein. We also know that Rod and Rob Herr, presumably- very very carefully and quietly curtailed the investigative scope of that investigation in ways that were not disclosed to the public. We only found that out later on with the infamous second memo telling the telling Mueller how to do his job. So he had a lot of interaction with that team. He was involved in kind of keeping it in a lane that everybody was more comfortable with. So I think that's interesting.
3: So he helped well, quote unquote land the plane. You know, I think that's I think that I don't
4: know that for a fact because by that point, I was gone, but I think that's a fair question. Um, and he also, I mean, look, we know there was a lot, I know from my own personal experience with these guys before I left, there was a lot of, I think what could be described as questionable or uncomfortable kind of bleed over of White House politics into DOJ. You know, operations and decision making, and I think a good example of that is is Rob Hur taking the podium at the White House to announce um, some accomplishments in a big MS-13 arrest. I mean, that is not done right. DOJ com- criminal operations are uh, supposed to be independent of White House political direction, and so that was an act that I thought was really questionable. So I. I just throw this out there to say there are some things that stand out in my mind as good questions to keep in the back of your head as we watch Rob Herr do his job on this very important case. Um, And at the end of the day, we'll see. We're going to watch it. We're going to talk to you all about it. We're going to report on it.
3: And we're going to overanalyze everything as we (laughs) typically do. And we'll see how he does. So, wow, my friend, um, very prescient. Uh, You telling (laughs) us that we needed to keep this in mind as this investigation goes forward, especially the part where he likes to inject politics into Department of Justice stuff, like particularly that took the podium at the White House. And, you know, I know that you've got um, actual experience working with him, which is why that whole thing, uh, why, why, why we discussed it a year ago.
4: Yeah, and and you know I got I got to say this is a little bit um uncomfortable for me um and I I'm talking about this on CNN uh yesterday and a couple times today. And so I just kind of feel like I should throw this out there as a full disclosure item um uh, before I go on to tell you about what I think about the report. So I I do know Rob and I worked with him when he was the what we call the pay dag, which is I think the uh principal uh Assistant, assistant attorney deputy general. attorney general. Assistant okay. deputy attorney general. There you go. I knew I was going to get that wrong. So yeah, O'Callahan basically,
3: was was that after right. the
4: paydag is the num is the is the deputy attorney general the DAG. Okay, The paydag is the DAG's right hand. Paydag is the person who executes all of the deputy attorney general's commands, and that is a very significant role because the deputy attorney general is actually the person who runs the Justice Department. The the attorney general has all the authority, um, but the day-to-day runnings of that massive, massive machine are are conducted by the deputy attorney general, the DAG, and also his right-hand man or woman, the pay DAG. So when I was deputy uh, director of the Bureau, um, the first part of the Trump administration, Rob Hur came in. uh, He was very close to Rod Rosenstein, who was the DAG at the time. And so I worked with him in that capacity. Um, and he was
3: the acting attorney general in the Mueller investigation because Jeff Sessions had recused himself.
4: That's right. So Rosenstein was the acting attorney general over the Mueller investigation and Rob Hur was basically the guy that Rosenstein designated to be the primary point of contact between DOJ and the Mueller investigation. So he was the guy that was getting the regular briefings from Mueller's team and and everything else. And that calls into question. That's why I mentioned in that clip that we should wonder about Rob Hur's role in what we now know was a pretty considerable uh, considered effort by Rosenstein and undoubtedly her to to curtail Mueller's investigation while it was in process. Um, so I should also, but the the full disclosure part of this is that Rob Hur was also personally involved in several of the aspects of my firing. And things that in my lawsuit against the Department of Justice, um, we alleged that her was really a key player in uh, overriding and, and essentially abandoning all of the process that I was entitled to and basically uh, accelerating um, the decision to fire me in an effort to get it done before I could retire uh, so that, that lawsuit we settled and, and that's widely known. So I don't want to go into the details of the settlement, but I feel like it's important, you know, that doesn't affect the way that I analyze Rob her's um, performance on this special counsel investigation, his report, I have some critical things to say, but I feel like, you know, the listeners deserve to know kind of some of that history and consider it however you will. So with respect to his current report. Um, I was struck by the language in the report, as many people have been. Um, the, The requirements on the special counsel, the requirement is simply that they must produce a report and turn it over to the attorney general at the conclusion of their work. And the report is supposed to explain whether they've chosen to prosecute or decline prosecution. And the report certainly does that. I was struck by the language in the report, as many people have been. I think it's important to point out that the requirement from the from the regulations uh over the special counsel um is simply that they produce a report and give it to the attorney general. But in addition to that, these the special counsels function under the authorization of the Department of Justice and it is I think universally accepted that they're also supposed to comply with DOJ policies and procedures. And some of those policies, as we've talked about in the last couple of shows include things like you don't impugn the reputations of people um, who aren't charged with wrongdoing. And I do think that there's, you know, there's a lot of ways that this report really goes right to the edge or over the edge uh, in doing that in their characterizations of Biden and
3: his memory and other things, yeah, at least but, not outside of the facts, right? Because the the Mueller report certainly impugns the character of Donald Trump and and his campaign uh, and his obstructive ways, but it it doesn't go beyond the facts of the case, right? They're like, well, he tried yeah. to fire special counsel, went through Don McGahn. They didn't add like he smelled bad and seemed stupid, you know? Like right. it was just right. it was just the facts of the case.
4: The the what the investigation uncovered was Trump's behavior and actions around these around these things. And so you that's what you relate in the report. Here's what we found. You also relate in the report, here's why we've decided to prosecute or not prosecute. I think the better comparison to the Mueller report is that Mueller, uh, to the massive frustration probably of half of the country, net, would not answer the question of whether or not any other citizen who engaged in this sort of conduct would have been indicted. Mueller, proceeding from the assumption that he cannot be indicted because he was a sitting president, would not say that but for his sitting president status, he would have been indicted. Now, you can read- And his
3: reason was, is because if I come out and say that he obstructed justice, then I am taking from him his constitutional right to face me in a court of law because he can't be indicted. That was his reason. He
4: he won't have an opportunity to go into court and clear his name and confront that accusation because we're not going to indict him. So, you know, and I know that was very frustrating to many people, but that was Mueller adhering to what he perceived as DOJ guidelines and policies writ large. I'm not so sure that Rob Heard did that here. There is definitely a sense when you read this report that there was some writing for the headline value, and then you get deeper into the analysis and it just doesn't hold up the headline. For instance, he says in several places, makes the very bold and absolute statement that Biden uh, intentionally withheld national defense, uh, willfully in, uh, withheld or retained national defense information. So much so that in, I think it's chapter 11, first paragraph, he he repeats that same accusation. And then a paragra- paragraph later says, uh, there is insufficient evidence to establish uh, by, beyond a reasonable doubt that Biden willfully retained national defense information. So in addition to that being like, head-spinningly confusing. I mean, even right. as a sophisticated reader, when you read that chapter, you're just like, wait a second, didn't he just say in the previous paragraph that the guy did it? Um, it's it's like the absolute statement gets the headline, and then he goes on to explain that that's not really the case. The same thing is true for everything, all this conversation around the comment that Biden made in a recording of a conversation with his ghostwriter. So. Here's the deal on that one. It's February 2017. Biden is in his house in Virginia. And he says to uh, his ghostwriter, must have been uh, somehow recorded. I don't know how it was recorded. He says, I found all the classified stuff downstairs. Her, in many places in the report, declares that what Biden was talking about was these papers about Afghanistan and the policy in Afghanistan and that sort of thing. It's not until well past page 200 that he explains that in that conversation, after making that comment, Biden never explains or identifies what papers or what stuff or what classified stuff he was talking about. Not only that, the rest of the entire conversation between he and the ghostwriter never includes any classified information. And finally, the actual Afghanistan papers weren't found in the House in Virginia. They were found in the garage in Delaware years later. So there's absolutely no chance any prosecutor could ever tie that statement uh, or could look at that statement as an admission of holding or, or willfully retaining the national defense information of the Afghanistan papers in Virginia in 2017. Nevertheless, Robert Hur refers to uh, Biden's you know, the best, at some point he says, the best case would be uh, for willfully retaining the Afghanistan papers in 2017 in the House of Virginia. It's just not there. And it's right. conflicting. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I you know, it raises a lot of questions about why he would have characterized the evidence in that way and made, drawn these conclusions about Biden in the report that really... Um, aren't substantiated by the facts and the analysis in the report.
3: Yeah. And and the, the part that got me was that, well, we didn't indict him because he's old and cute and cuddly and yeah, his that's memory's just bad. Crazy. Um, when in fact, the report lays out that the reason that he wasn't indicted and that he wouldn't even be indicted if he weren't a sitting president uh, is because they don't have the evidence uh, yeah, to prove the, beyond a reasonable doubt that he willfully retain documents. That's the statement that should be made about right. why you they don't have to prosecute the evidence. someone.
4: They don't have the evidence. And he readily not only acknowledges, he goes through a detailed analysis of the fact that Biden would have several very capable and likely successful defenses to these charges if it were to go to trial. So no evidence and clearly likely successful defenses. That doesn't lead you to excoriating the guy. And even if even if, as you were explaining why you decided to decline prosecution, one of your reasons was was based on the fact that uh, it would be hard to prove Biden's intent, willful intent to retain this material, uh, partially because he didn't really remember it very clearly, he showed no memory of having taken or had this stuff. Um, if Biden had stumbled in the interviews about over issues like that, about his memory, you might want to make reference to that. But you, you do that by saying the witness was unable to recollect X or the witness was un, unable – claimed he didn't remember Y. You don't Which say – Which Donald
3: Trump did 40 times in his yeah. written responses to Bob Mueller.
4: Every witness who's ever been interviewed has failed <laughs> yeah. to remember something. Me among them. I've failed yeah, to remember same. really important stuff that I wish I had remembered, but nevertheless. There are a ton
3: of people in the United States who've never sat through a depot, and it shows. you yeah, uh, it's hard. have you know, I've been in depositions, and they're like, don't try to tell us through you know vague recollection. You either recall right. something or you don't, and if you don't, say you don't. Don't speculate.
4: Right. I got this sense about the report literally in the very first couple of pages, of the, where the first part, he starts off by talking about Joe Biden. And Joe Biden had all these materials because, you know, he's someone who always considered himself a statesman or something like, like that. He thinks and, he's
3: very important to and, and, he's,
4: and he's, you know, he wanted himself, these materials. He says something like he wanted these materials as evidence of his presidential timber. Now, that statement is not cited, there's no footnote, it's not cited to any actual statement of Biden. So the question is, why are you characterizing his motivation for retaining this material? Like, what is that based on? It, was, it comes off as, I hate to use the word because people are throwing it all around, but it does come off as gratuitous and unnecessary
3: um, and kind of like underhanded so yeah, well it, he's yeah. also not a psychologist, he's not a psychiatrist, no, he's not a doctor. Not he's a prosecutor, and he should be using prosecutorial legal terms of art right um
2: If he
4: asked Joe Biden it. why End did you have this stuff, and Joe Biden said, "I felt like it was great evidence of my presidential timber, then fine. put it in yeah. the report but but barring that there's no,
3: no, there's no citation no no so and so, I think anyway. that's why the White House is now considering they want the transcripts,
4: yeah, so. When you look at all this together, I think it raises some very uh, significant questions about the decisions that Rob Herr made in presenting how he presented this information. Look, he had to write a report. Good on you. The report is very detailed. That's great. It is when you get into the analysis, when if you're like me and reading past page 200, you, you'll you see some very clear explanations as to why there's no case here. but. The present the headline value present is is off. It's political. From what the as report hell. actually contains
3: it's super political, and as you warned us to keep an eye on the, the political nature of of what Robert Hur mm-hmm. may or may not do. Um, but yeah, no charges. A uh, first sp- first special counsel in history, not That's to bring in crazy. Down. I
4: didn't realize that, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. really interesting.
3: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I think there'll be testimony. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it should be totally exonerated and we can just move on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally uh but, exoneration. Oh my but gosh. um, you know, it does, it does show that, that we have some, we have gaps in our classification system. I know he's put together a task force now to look at this, yeah. uh, and how, how classified is, is handled. I thought when the, Uh, investigation into Trump was announced and then Vice President Pence, uh, former Vice President Pence and Biden, uh, I thought there should have been an announcement that we're going to have a moonshot 10 year plan to digitize and modernize the classification system. I still think that that should take place. Uh, But we we haven't seen that either. But, uh, you know, it's uh, this is seems very political in nature. I am kind of not surprised based on what we now know what we knew in a year ago. Uh, what yeah. you taught us about uh, Robert Herr. but here, we, here we are, and it will have to be dealt with. It's a black eye politically, uh, and um, and and that's uh, that's I think a problem. It goes against DOJ, uh, and let's let's be honest. Top line: Merrick Garland should not have chosen Robert Hur.
4: To, well, to this I, I thought it was a questionable choice at the time. My review of the report kind of confirms what I initially thought, and I I can't sit here and tell you why her did this. Whether it was a, a an affirmative political decision, he was trying to give Joe Biden a back a black eye, or he was trying to throw a bone to his uh, conservative friends who probably aren't crazy about the idea that he didn't recommend charges. I have no idea. Could be any of those things. You should ask
3: Rob Her, and he should answer those questions. But I want to ask Merrick Garland why he picked Rob Her. I mean, he's only one of two Trump holdovers.
4: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Jack Smith wasn't a member of the Biden administration, right? I mean, you, I, I'm trying to remember his resume from that would have been that would have been episode one or two or something. But he was a career he professional. He was at the Hague. DOJ. He was at
3: the PIN a long time ago, like Left, right 2004 to 2014 or something like that. At the
4: Hague, then came back. And he was actually a an acting U.S. attorney somewhere, but I don't think that that's a political appointee, right? That's just like you're in as an acting. I don't think you have to be Senate confirmed to be an. If you'd been Senate confirmed, you
3: wouldn't have been an acting. So, mm-hmm. but he was at the Hague when he was appointed special counsel. Yeah, yeah, then. yeah. And, of he, course, and he couldn't fly back immediately because he injured himself running an ultra marathon. Because the guy the that. and to he's a guy, guy that has miles. like
4: <laughs> no history of partisanship. You know. Yeah. He, we served in DOJ, but down, layers down that are beyond kind of the touch of politics. Not the same with Rob Herr. Rob Herr was an uh, essential element of Donald Trump's legal team at DOJ. Full stop. And I I just felt like at the time, like I get it. Uh, Garland is maybe trying to pick a, a conservative, a prominent conservative, to take this investigation of Biden, keep everything you know neutral, whatever. But it was an o- it was an overreach. I don't think he needed to pick someone from the Trump team. There's. Washington D.C. is full of really good lawyers, many of whom are former prosecutors, and many of those who served in Republican administrations. Not the one that's <laughs> running against the other guy. I mean, it, yeah,
3: and I mean, if you're trying to swing the pendulum so hard the other way that you're going to allow Durham to continue being Durham, and you're going to uh, appoint the only other Trump holdover to investigate this, uh, j- just to just to be able to say. Hey, I, I was you know trying to fair. Yeah. be fair. I would be fair, but uh, the, it's just it, it was I, I, I the wrong it decision. A, it was the yeah. wrong decision. I would yeah. love I to be able at the to to know I feels that way a little more now. The decision making process there, like what, what did you think it was cooler that you'd be able to say, hey, he's a Republican, uh, than what we're facing now? I mean, it and it the fact that it took a year and it, you know Mike Pence's took a couple of months, open and shut. The DOJ did it itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I, I think there should have been a special counsel. I just don't think it should have been her. And yes, I know everyone you grab your fainting couch. I'm criticizing the department of justice. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I do that from time to time, uh, <laughs> when it's necessary. And I think this was a yeah. wrong choice. All, All
4: right. right. Should we go to listener questions and, and yes. wrap this incredibly long show up?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if, can you imagine if we had to cover the immunity, uh, ruling this week in this episode, my friend? Yeah. <gasps>
4: Yeah. All right. I got two very quick ones for you. Um, the first one comes to us from Joy. And Joy asks, has Andy McCabe ever been mistaken for Michael Kelly? Michael's portrayal of Mike November and Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan sure looks like Andy, especially with those lovely black frames on. Any possibility of Michael Kelly playing Andy in a film or TV adaptation of his life? <laughs> um, yeah, Joy, it happened already. Uh Michael Kelly played me in the movie version of Jim Comey's book. Mhm. Uh what was it called? Um The Comey Rule. The Comey Rule. Yes. And I met uh, Michael Yeah,
3: yeah uh-huh. I met
4: him before the movie after he'd gotten the job. We had lunch together one day. It was just awesome. He's such a nice guy and we have all these like similarities in our past. We're both like cross country runners in high school and all this other kind of stuff. And at the end of our lunch, he was leaving, and he said, "Well, I have to go because I have an appointment uptown to have a wig made of your hair." And I was like, "That's the grossest and weirdest thing anyone's ever said to me." So,
3: but it worked. Did you have to hair, donate his hair the hair like mine. Or, oh, okay.
4: No, I guess they just like gin up some sort of wig that looks like you.
3: No, he did a really um, great job portraying you in that.
4: Yeah, he did. He's terrific. So that's question one. All right, so. Question two comes to us from Kathy.
3: I think uh, uh, Chloe Sevigny would play me uh, in the nice. movie about.
4: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could totally see that.
3: Yeah, because I'm a little too old for Drew Barrymore to play me now. Um, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> the I movie to, version I, of Jack. I used to I get. It. I used to get Drew Barrymore all the time, but now I think I think Chloe Sevigny. Yeah.
4: No, I'm there. I I, I agree. All right. Last question comes to us from Kathy. Kathy says, I'd really like to know if special counsel Robert Hur was required to present a report on President Biden's document case to the AG. If he did, why would AG Garland allow some of the issues regarding to the president's age and some memory lapses to be included in the report? It was totally unnecessary and seems to have been included on purpose to cause an uproar. So, Kathy, we obviously just talked about that. Um, 28 CFR section 600, Uh it, is where you can find the regulations for special counsel, DOJ special counsel. And it is 600.9 that has the requirement. It says, closing documentation at the conclusion of the special counsel's work, he or she shall provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by the special counsel. That's it. But later on, it also makes clear that if the attorney general disagrees with the report, or wants to change a finding or something like that, which uh, that's what would have essentially happened if Garland had said, no, no, I don't want this language in there. I don't want you to refer to Biden in this way. That would have triggered a whole process whereby the AG would have had to report that to Congress, that he had essentially gotten involved at the last minute and changed the substance of the report.
3: Can you imagine-
4: Oh, my God, that would have just turned the whole thing into a kind of that would have been like what
3: Bill Barr did. Yeah, Yeah. I I wouldn't encourage anybody to 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 uh, wish that Garland was more like Bill Barr. Uh, I think, again, the top line problem here is that her shouldn't have been the person that was appointed. It would have avoided that. Uh, maybe necessarily, but uh, I think the more attention should. That's the mistake. The mistake started there with the appointment. But coming in, covering up, redacting stuff, changing it, injecting uh, yourself into it, um, it would be a Not lot a like, idea. you yeah. know, Bill Barr meeting with Durham every week to have whiskey and cigars. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. the, that's the kind of stuff w- we
4: want to avoid. It wouldn't have been good for Biden. Because it would have no. looked like, oh, Biden told Garland to change the text of the report. So, like, it would have been a a whole a whole. No, I but- I
3: I think the fact that we have this adversarial thing between the Attorney General and the President playing out right now is actually a, a benefit to to the President. I mean, the whole thing is a black eye, uh, but it's it's better than. If they were colluding and came up with the you know a yeah. thing that made everybody happier, or if or if Garland had written a, a four-page characterization of the findings and sat on the report right. for three weeks, you know,
4: right? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a black eye for Biden. It's going to probably cause him all kinds of campaign issues. It's not the narrative they they I would assume like to have out there, but that's it. You know, nobody's sitting back saying like, oh, look, you know, Garland is going after the president's enemies for him and. Although actually Trump says that every day, but it's not, the facts don't bear it out. So anyway.
3: Yeah. Agreed. Thank you for the questions. If you have any questions, there is a link in the show notes where you can uh, click that link and and follow it follows to a form that you can fill out and send us a question. Thank you so much for your questions. They're so thoughtful um, and and fun. I liked the who plays you in the movie thing. Yeah, Um, I thought that was funny. um, yeah, the, sorry about the long episode today. We did we did as much as we can by putting out that emergency episode. So thank you very much for listening. Do you have any final thoughts, Andy?
4: No, I think we've given them enough this week. But uh, hang in there, because who knows where we end up next week? It's an adventure uh, with every episode.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Allison Gill,
4: and I'm Andy McCabe.